Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, I don't know about you, but I sure am tired. Why are you tired? Because last night was the Academy Awards. Oh, yeah. We're living in the future. This is our after-party extravaganza episode. We're still in our gowns from last night. We're still in our gowns. we still got some champagne buzzes going. We've been to parties all night. Confetti in our hair. John <laughs> Hamm passed out in the studio <laughs> booth. Um, yes, uh, this episode airs the day after the Academy Awards. And last year, around this time, we did an episode about female directors. Mm-hmm. And uh, we thought it'd be a fun time to follow up on the current state of Hollywood and and talk about things that won, things that were nominated, and, and what's going on in that crazy town of Hollywood. Yeah, because last year we talked about directors because Catherine Bigelow was up for Best Director with which she won. The, Hurt, the Hurt Locker. Yes, mm-hmm. which she won. And so the big question was, will there be a Bigelow effect? And Molly, what's the answer? The answer was no, quite definitively no. Despite the fact that two of the movies that were up for Best Motion Picture of the Year, The, Ki- the Kids Are All Right and Winter's Bone, were both directed by women. Those two women were not nominated for Best Director. All of the uh, Best Directing nominees were men, so no Bigelow effect that was noticeable. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we're, we're recording this a few weeks before the Oscars, so we don't know what won, but uh, a movie that's highly anticipated to win Best Picture, The Social Network, womp, womp. has been highly criticized for the way it depicted women in that movie because it just shows a lot of female students partying. Uh, while the Ivy League girls are sexy, that's all I have to say. While the while the poor men are sitting at home programming, uh, so that that you can read all about that on the internet. Um, but yeah, it's it's not a. I, I don't know if it was a great year for women in Hollywood. Yeah, you know, some some great performances have been uh, nominated and will have been awarded last night. But you know, in terms of the the big winners. I don't see women being one of those people who took a trophy home. Well, while there has not been a Bigelow effect in terms of the the Oscar nominations this year, one thing I have noticed throughout this past year is there have uh, women have been more vocal about gender gaps in Hollywood in mm-hmm. terms of how they're represented on screen, um, who is uh, more respected in the industry, who makes more in the industry. Can I can I offer a quote from Helen Mirren? Oh, I always like quotes from Helen Mirren. This was at uh, in a speech she gave not too long ago at a breakfast for women in entertainment. And she said, quote, with all respect to you many brilliant and successful women in this room, really not much has changed in the canon of Hollywood filmmaking that continues to worship at the altar of the 18 to 25 year old male and his penis. Helen. Helen Saucy Helen. Um, but it's true. It's true. And, you know, I think that, you know, unfortunately, we'll probably be doing a podcast every year about this. And uh, if the podcast existed 10 years ago, there'd probably be a pretty similar, similar story that women aren't the the queens of Hollywood. It seems like a town that's run by men. And so to follow up on last year, where we talked mainly about directors. We're going to look at some other jobs in the movie industry, particularly actresses, writers and producers. Yeah. And I think the point here when we talk about the gender gap in Hollywood isn't isn't to gripe, but to think about it in the grand scheme of things of how women are represented 
in film and how that trickles down to and influences our popular culture. Mm-hmm. So just kind of keep that in mind as we go through these statistics, such as the ratio of female to male characters in film has been one to three since 1946. And since we are talking about the Oscars, this is our Oscar after party. After all, uh, since we're talking about the Oscars, well, let's throw out this statistic. This is from uh, analyzing the gender dynamics in Best Picture Academy Award nominated films from 1977 to 2006. And of the 6,833 single speaking characters evaluated in all of those Best Picture nominated films, only 27.3% were female. In other words... When a film is nominated for Best Picture, chances are the cast is largely male. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some notable exceptions this year we should mention. Um, Black Swan features females duking it out. Natalie Portman, Mila Kunis. We've got The Kids Are All Right, about a family headed by Annette Bening and Julianne Moore. Yes. Uh, Let's see. Winter's Bone about a young woman struggling to hold her family together. So we've got some, hopefully we'll, we'll change the odds a little bit this year, but you know, we went from 1977 to 2006 in this study, and the researchers who wrote it broke it down by three periods, from 1977 to 1986, and then from 1987 to 1996, and then from 1997 to 2006. And even when you split it up by these decades, you see no growth. You know, it's not like we're rising as time goes on. The The differences are, you know, just not perceptible. We're Really not making that much progress if you look at it from a timeline perspective. And Molly, I would like to point out that these statistics are coming from one of our new favorite think tanks. Yes. The Gina Davis Institute for Gender and Media. If you did not know this, fair listeners, Gina Davis is... Very concerned about uh, how women are portrayed on film, especially uh, how younger women are mm-hmm. portrayed in PG and G rated films because she was this, this happened because she was watching movies with her younger daughter and was just outraged by the sexualization and representation of women on screen. And so she started this institute. Just kind of interesting. Yeah, it raises these questions of who are we watching on screen, which is why Kristen made that comment earlier that, you know, it's it can be hard to to gripe about a gender gap when you're talking about people who make millions and billions of dollars. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're the ones sitting down watching these movies, perhaps with our children. And we need to think about, you know, how women are being represented in that. So let's go back to um, and Gina Davis, if you're listening. Hire me. I'd like to work at your institute. Give us a call, Gina. We'd love to chat. Good job in a league of their own. Um, so now after that study looks at the female characters on screen, it looks at who had jobs behind the scenes. And again, the ratio of males to females in occupations like writer, director, and producer, 6.5 to 1. So there's disparity in front of the camera. There's disparity behind the camera. Uh, but the one thing that they did notice is that if a direct, if the director is female, there might be a greater chance that there'll be a female on screen playing a significant role. So, you know, the, the argument goes that if we want to change what we see on the screen, perhaps we have to change what we see behind the scenes. And all of the, not surprisingly, um, those kind of gender imbalances also lead to a gender gap among the highest earners in Hollywood. And again, Molly, like you said, we're talking about people who are bringing home exorbitant amounts of cash. They're talking about a pay gap does seem kind of silly, but, but the symbolism is the same. Exactly. You know, we uh, found all these lists of the highest paid entertainers in Hollywood and the list always starts 
with a ton of males. Yeah, a bunch of white guys. Uh, and this is coming from Vanity Fair's list from the top earners from 2009. And number one, we have Michael Bay, who produced all the Transformers movies, inclu- and also Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, followed by Steven Spielberg. We've got James Cameron in at number four. It's not until we get down to number 14 that we get the first lady on the list, Miss Emma Watson of Harry Potter fame. Right. And Cameron Diaz is also one that pops up on those high-ranking lists a lot. Um, who else was on those lists? Uh, we also have Angelina Jolie beating out Jennifer Aniston on this list. We've got Sarah Jessica Parker and Katherine Heigl and Reese Witherspoon and also Sandra Bullock. And then finally, Kristen Stewart from Twilight. And those are the only women, the women that I just ticked off, are the only women on Vanity Fair's list of the 40 top earners in Hollywood. And so that's um, all altogether, all professions. So you've got all these male producers and mm-hmm. directors who top the list. Female producers, directors don't even make the list. No. And it's not until we get to acting that we see those um, women start to pop up. And when you, if you just look at the acting lists, those, again, lists are dominated by people like Will Smith, Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. It'll be like five or six guys until you finally get to a woman. And, you know, it's, and, you know, it's hard to quibble when Cameron Diaz is making 30 million to Will Smith, 60 million, because that's more money than I would ever need in my lifetime. Right. But, you know, the, the standard is the same. And it, I think it does send that, that message to people that if Cameron Diaz is only worth half of what Will Smith is worth, then, you know, then women are devalued both before they even get on the screen to play a character. Now, when Forbes was analyzing this list of male versus female actors and the money that they were bringing in, they related a lot of that pay gap to the budgets in films. Essentially, the higher the budget in a film, the higher the lead actor is going to make. And when you think big budget films, you think action movies, Mm -hmm. big explosions, big fight scenes, CGI, things like that, that are really going to bring up um, the expense. And a lot of times, big budget films are led by dudes because superheroes. Yeah. Spider-Man. Yeah. Whereas chick flicks, and I hate to use that term, but chick flicks. All right. They really don't require that many you know, fancy, fancy thing. You don't have to put CGI on a, on a kiss. Although perhaps the wardrobe of Sex and <laughs> the City was, could buy a small nation. But yeah, I mean, and you can see it. I mean, this is not news to anyone. If you even just look at how these commercials for films are marketed to you, these action movies are marketed to everyone. Movies like Sex and the City are marketed to very niche audiences. And so I think that because, you know, the salaries are different, uh, the, the people writing and producing them are different. They see these these female audiences and these movies that are geared toward females as their own little niche, mm-hmm. whereas male movies are for everyone. Yeah, and they and the big budget films tend to, you know, you have the summer blockbusters and they tend to rake in more cash. And so all of it translates to a bigger payday for the guys. But again, kind of like when we were talking about um holding constant the the directors and producers behind the screen and how that relates to the um, gender representation on screen. When you hold the budgets equal for both male and female actors, they're going to bring in the same amount of money. Yeah, they're saying that if, let's say, both Will Smith and Cameron Diaz decide to make a little um, $30 million movie, a very small comedy, they would make 
it would bring in the same amount of money. Yeah, the the amount of the earnings has nothing. There is no correlation between movie earnings and the gender of the lead actors. But Molly, what about the people who are writing these movies? The screenwriters. We talked about the producers and the directors and the actors and actresses. What about the writers, Molly? Oh, it's a sad story for writers in Hollywood who are female or not white, um, because the Writers Guild of America West has been commissioning these studies uh, almost every two years, I guess now, to look at diversity among writers, and uh, it's 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 never very good. The Writers Guild is seventy-two percent male. Let's just kick it off with that. <laughs> yeah, women are underrepresented about two to one in the industry, uh, both in film and television. And just like every other uh, sort of Hollywood career, the female writers make less money than the men. Uh, the pay gap is not quite as large in television, mm-hmm. but it is pretty significant when you come to screenplays. And Kristen, you came across uh, a kind of interesting article in the New York Times about something called the Fempire. The Fempire. Yes, this came out in 2009. And the Fempire is a group of four screenwriters in Hollywood that is centered around Diablo Cody, Mm -hmm. who won the 2008 um, Oscar for her screenplay of Juno. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because it was this portrait of this this gaggle of gals, this very Sex in the City-like of Diablo Cody and her screenwriter friends who call themselves the Fempire, uh, because it really painted them as these hip, fashionable writers who are breaking in. But the story completely glossed over the fact that there is this huge disparity, like gender disparity among screenwriters and just kind of made them seem sort of sort of kitschy and cute. Well, what was sort of unsaid to me was the fact that these four female writers have found each other basically because no one else understood what they were going through. And, you know, they were subject to these things that the male writers weren't. But, you know, it's it's sort of, you know, if we want to show female writers as, you know, forces to be hired, I don't know if doing a New York Times article where they all talk about, like, purses is the way to to do it. Well, and the, I mean, the, the author did make one point. She writes, uh, screenwriters usually don't have stylists or publicists, yet women say they feel pressure to look photogenic in a way that is not demanded of male screenwriters. One recent evening, each woman had to check the label she was wearing when asked to identify it. So perhaps it's just reflective of the... the um, the added pressure mm-hmm. on on these younger female screenwriters to break into the business in a way that maybe a man might not have to. Right. I think that, you know, we, we've talked about female playwrights and we never had to talk about whether they had to show up at award shows mm-hmm. and look glamorous. And that was something that Diablo Cody said she really struggled with when Juno got so popular is that she was essentially being judged almost as an actress in terms of appearance and, you know, she really was just a screenwriter. The other screenwriters up that year were not subject to that same sort of demand. So mm-hmm. it's like any female in the industry becomes almost, um, you know, tr- gets the Jennifer Aniston treatment in some way in that they have to perform to these standards of females in Hollywood that, you know, the indie guys don't seem to have to put up with. Now, at the same time, we can take it as a, as a positive thing that the Writers Guild is paying attention to the issue by commissioning these stories and or these studies, excuse me, and really looking at um, what kind of 
stories they're putting on screen because they do want a diversity of voices. They want a diversity of perspectives. Um, and so maybe that's the lesson that we take from all of this as consumers, as people who are watching, watching the movies, watching television shows, uh, is deciding how we want to support that diversity. Mm-hmm. It you doesn't know, necessarily have to be a female, right? I mean, we're talking a lot about the breakdown of men and women, but again, we're not even talking about minority, racial minority. Mm-hmm. And I think some people will say that, you know, a good movie is a good movie. It should make no difference who wrote it, who directed it and whatnot. But um, as as these Writers Guild studies point out in the in the intro text that it's good business to diversify. Uh, you know, our country is increasingly becoming diversified and we've got to you know, they're saying if you want to get people to the movies on watching TV, it's got to reflect their reality. And so I think that, you know, we can try to support the shows that do reflect our own reality uh, that are produced in a quality way. So our, I'm a little concerned, Kristen, because I feel like our after party got a little serious. And I, I really wanted it to just be fun. And There's nothing wrong with a serious busy. after party, Mo- Molly. Yeah. You know, we we uh, since we're recording this from the future, we can't talk about any of our favorite dresses right. or, or what starlets made uh, fools of themselves and whatnot. But I do want to tell everyone out there who appreciates watching the dresses, as I do, I enjoy a good red carpet pre-show. Absolutely. That the total cost, on average, of a person walking down that red carpet... Well, of, of, of a female star. Of a female down. star walking down the red carpet is probably more than you spent on your house. How much, Molly? $750,000. Whoa! That is fees for a stylist, for the dress, for the shoes, for the jewelry. Now, granted, uh, actresses usually don't pay all of that money themselves. Right. Uh, movie sto- studio will pick it up. But, uh, you know, if you look at these women last night and you wonder how they look so perfect. You it know, only costs almost a million dollars. I know. Say, if you had $750,000, I think you'd look pretty great. Pretty great, too. So excellent. We can, we can end this podcast on a slightly frivolous note, um, as, as we should for our Oscar after party. I agree. Food for thought, facts to throw out. Great. What more do you want from a party? I don't know. Um, I'd really like John Hamm to to wake up <laughs> and take us out to brunch. Well, while we wait for that, should we read some listener mail? Yes. Well, I have an email here from Meredith. It's about our corset episode, and she writes, As someone who has watched entirely too many period pieces and has spent many years studying 19th century literature, I always thought corsets were cool. But when I became a mother, I suddenly realized how uncool they could be. One of the biggest problems with corsets in history has been its effect on mothers who are nursing infants. Even a loose corset can exert pressure the wrong way and cause breast infections and milk supply issues, which was kind of a big deal before things like reliable formula were around. Personally, I feel I foolishly bought a corset-type garment after having my dollar because I wanted my waist to look smaller and figured because it wasn't a bra, it shouldn't pose a problem. Wrong. Mastitis is horrible and pretty embarrassing when the cause is vanity. So... A perspective on corsets and nursing. I have an email here from Kara, and it was in response to our episode on objectum sexuality. And she was taking issue with the idea of a relationship between the woman and uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. So she writes, any relationship in order to be successful and fulfilling in the long run must involve giving, putting your partner first. Ask not what your partner can do for you. Ask what you can do for your partner. 
This woman in the example has little to offer the bridge, aside from perhaps scrubbing off graffiti. She takes from the bridge, gives nothing back, and is jealous and possessive. Is this a fetish, a sexual orientation, or is it just narcissistic emotional abuse directed at objects instead of people? Will we need to build shelters for bridges escaping from abusive relationships? All right. Well, if you have any email to send our way, our address is momstuffathowstuffworks.com. Of course, we'd love to see you over on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And, of course, we'd love to see you on Facebook as well. You can like us there, leave us a comment. And, as always, we'd really love for you to, we just love a lot of things, we'd really love for you to read our blog. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?